Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses podcast. I'm Christian Haynes, and I'm with Gamers with Glasses, uh, where your go-to site for game developers, fans, critics, scholars, whoever uh, who wants to gather to talk about games in a fun but intellectual way. Uh, and I'm lucky to have Christopher Brew. A uh, professor from Illinois State uh, who has written on Marxism, materialism, literature, and culture. His most recent book is Noir Affect, but he's also published a book called Insistence uh, on the Material Literature in the Age of Biopolitics. Uh, and I'm, and Chris, do you want to say hello? Oh, hey. Hey, everybody. Uh, and I'm also joined by Patrick Jagoda. Patrick is a professor at University of Chicago. He's most recently published a book called Experimental Games. Uh, he's also published another book called Network Aesthetics. Uh, Patrick, you want to say hello? Sure. Thanks for having us on, Christian. Uh, no, I'm just really thrilled both of you could uh, join us. And this is a special episode of the Gamers with Glasses show. Uh, and we're here to talk about the GameStop fiasco, the GameStop Wall Street Robin Hood fiasco <laughs> that involves shorting and all kinds of other fun things that we'll get into. Uh, but a small caveat, we are not going to break down every single little detail of the past week and a half of stock market drama. There is other great places that you can go to that and we'll try to link to that both on uh, Gamers with Glasses and in the show notes. Uh, but we do wanna start off by hitting some of the main beats uh, in order to just kind of think more generally about the relationship between the games industry, uh, the stock market, Wall Street, questions of social class and politics. Um, and so maybe to start off, we can talk about how there is a Reddit uh, thread, a subreddit called Wall Street Bets. Uh, and on Wall Street Bets, there were a handful of posters who started noticing that GameStop was likely being shorted. Uh, they were able to figure out that GameStop was likely being shorted. Shorting here means that a group of hedge funds uh, were borrowing and this is actually a sort of crucial element. They were borrowing stocks in order to sell them, in order to then recoup money on them. The idea being that they would actually be able to make money by the stock prices going lower. Because when the stocks were basically bought back from them, they would make the difference there. Uh, but the problem with shorting is that if the price goes up, you're on the hook for that amount of money. And in fact, there's a whole sort of complex apparatus where you have to essentially insure 
uh, the stocks that you're shorting, the stocks that you're borrowing in order to short. Uh, and as you, you know, as the stock price goes up, the insurance price goes up. And you're essentially being charged an interest rate based on the stock price. And so as it goes up, so too does your interest rate go up. Mm-hmm. And Wall Street bets, the folks on Wall Street bets started essentially kind of pushing folks to invest in GameStop, in GME, to use their stock uh, call, uh, and to purchase options, to invest in it uh, through a number of means, but largely through a retail stock trading app that anybody can use, which is called Robinhood. Relatively recent uh, app. Uh, Folks have been using it for a little while. Uh, But all of a sudden, a bunch of people start buying it on Robinhood. And in buying it, what essentially happens is they pump up the price of the stock. So the stock starts rallying. There's no real sense that GameStop has actually done anything uh, to change. And you know, we'll talk a little bit about the situation of GameStop in a moment, but it's worth noting that part of the reason it was being shorted is that a lot of folks essentially believe that a company like GameStop, a store like GameStop, really wasn't necessary any longer. A dedicated physical store for purchasing video games, consoles, and other kinds of video game accessories. The idea was more people are moving to downloading their games, to purchasing them online, even when they're getting physical copies. And even when they're not doing that, even when folks don't have the ability to do that or don't want to do that, they're purchasing more from places like Walmart, Target, Mm -hmm. all of whom are actually doing more physical sales than Mm -hmm. GameStop is. There was a real question about whether or not GameStop is viable. And we can talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But the idea here is that, you know, nothing's really changed with GameStop, but Mm -hmm. the price just pumped up nonetheless. There's this kind of speculative bubble produced around it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of these people really just kind of, they rallied around GameStop in a way where they really wanted to stick it to the hedge funds that were trying to short it. And I think that's an important aspect. There was a a narrative on Wall Street bets about how they were sticking it to the man. And they were very explicit about this, a lot of them. They weren't just trying to make money. A lot of them were trying to hold on to the stocks for as long as possible, in part so the hedge funds would take the losses. Uh, And some people did make money. I actually listened to uh, somebody on... Planet Money, uh, who cashed out at $4 million, had invested roughly $200,000 into uh, GME and actually cashed out at $4 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are people that made a profit and there are lots of stories of people paying off medical debt, people paying off uh, loans that are in really tight, desperate situations. I think it's important to note just we're in a high unemployment uh, rate in the US economy. There's a lot of people that are really suffering. And so that's really been a part of what's going on here. There's anger at Wall Street because for all of the suffering that's happening, Wall Street's actually done pretty well. Stock, stocks have been up. Uh, lots of people have still been making a killing on stocks. And there was a sense of, you know, just a sense of injustice and unfairness that was really, I think, coloring a lot of this. Uh, so a couple other things that happened. There's a reaction of stock market professionals, including one of the people from one of these hedge funds, flat out saying, this isn't good for the U.S. economy. You know, stop doing this. Please stop doing this. Uh, Notably, most of those people actually got out. And this is actually important 
because a lot of these hedge funds did go out and take a loss, but they were able to carry that loss. And some of them did get monies from other uh, funds in order to cover mm-hmm. their losses, mm-hmm. but they were able to get out. They're still viable. Uh, and because they got out, they were actually able to push down the price by getting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the price is currently uh, dropping. It's still above what it was when all of this started happening by a significant amount, mm-hmm. uh, but it's certainly not in the kind of 400%, 800%, 900%, ridiculous numbers uh, that the stock was up uh, before that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we're seeing, jump in, start- Patrick. I was just going to say that the price started, as far as I know, at about uh, $18 a stock at the end of 2020 and rose almost to 500 by the end. So the scale is enormous yeah. on this being pumped up in the course of a couple of weeks, even less. Exactly. Yeah. That's stocks generally don't do that. And certainly mm-hmm. stocks in a, you know, a game distribution company, a game sales company that does not develop games that mm-hmm. essentially just offers like physical outlets. It does have an online presence, which we should talk about at some point. Uh, but, you know, it should not be, there's no business reason it should be going up. And in fact, but, but some I mean, of the this things, is kind of, this is kind of the thing, right? Is that business reasons don't seem to be driving the, the stock market anymore. I mean, that, that, you know, that's been part of what the whole COVID uh, reality has been that, you know, the, the, the economy can tank and the stock market keeps going up. And so you start to wonder what's, what's the relationship between the, the realm of production on the one side and, and the realm of speculation on the other. So, yeah. Exactly. And this is, I mean, this is kind of disjunction, this disconnect is something we should talk more about because I think it's actually something that's been restructuring game development as well since mm-hmm. the early 2000s, since the birth essentially of what we now call AAA games, mm-hmm. right? Like with the birth of AAA games, uh, games that cost millions and millions of dollars to make, mm-hmm. you're seeing more and more of a presence of the stock market and of shareholders and of publicly totally. traded game development companies uh, and the pressure on those companies. Uh, I even think of the produce. cyberpunk uh, fiasco, right? You know, yeah, yeah where so much of it is about like, you know, making investors happy, whether the game is ready or not, or, you know, yeah, so, yeah. And, and it's funny, right? Because you get this like now sort of infamous uh, call between shareholders, but that also includes developers or people, yeah. you know, sort of in management, but not top management who just right. like are angry with their management kind of kowtowing to shareholders. And the worst part about this perhaps is that it's anticipatory. In other words, a lot of the decisions about how games are made uh, involves basically producers on games anticipating what shareholders might think. Right. Mm-hmm. Thinking about mm-hmm. what's going to happen if we go into five, six, seven years of development instead of right. that four to five years. That's ideal, probably, for a lot right. of AAA game dev. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, a couple other things we might want to mention that's happened here. Mm-hmm. Robinhood shut down trading at one point uh, on GME and a few other stocks. For example, AMC Movies was another one that got caught up in this bubble, essentially, this uh, mm-hmm. stock price bubble uh, in what is often called a short squeeze. So from the perspective of people trying to short it, uh, what's happening is a squeeze is being applied in the shorts to basically tank those people shorting it uh, Mm -hmm. by trying to produce a kind of like micro bull market, right? Trying to pump up these prices. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about this, but actually what it turned out to be is simply put that Robinhood is a smaller company than people realized. Or to put it differently, they're a company 
that actually doesn't have as much money as they need to, to cover the kinds of trades people were making. Mm -hmm. So there was a moment where the CEO of Robinhood, whose name I don't have written down, unfortunately, but the CEO of Robinhood basically got a call at three in the morning Pacific Standard Time saying they needed $7 billion wow. to cover the trades on these various stocks. And they didn't have $7 billion. Mm -hmm. That was like just an amount that they were not used to covering. So it's uh, an issue of equity on some basic level. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they weren't able to cover it. And it's worth noting, like Robinhood doesn't actually execute trades. They mm -hmm. work with other companies that execute, other like stock right. companies that execute trades for them mm -hmm. and that weren't willing to essentially front them that much uh, mm -hmm. to cover the trade for the clearinghouse. Because there's a central clearinghouse that basically says you need this amount of money to cover it. They didn't have that amount of money, so they shut it down so that the trades wouldn't go through. And mm -hmm. that's when people got really angry, conspiracy mm -hmm. theories. Elon Musk gets involved once again uh, and sort of angers the young tech bros. Uh, and then now we're at the stock price drop and probably people will hold on for a little bit longer. But that's kind of where we're at with the story. Mm -hmm. Does anybody want to jump in? I mean, it's just worth noting that the Robinhood has been the focus, but there are also other brokers, the limited sales of GameStop. So there's, you know, like interactive brokers or Charles Schwab, limited transactions that they claim could increase overall risk of market volatility too. So it's good to focus on Robinhood as a kind of synecdoche of all of this, but it's a it's a broader system as well. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they stand in for a lot of this. And I think, you know, this is part of the problem of having the name Robinhood. Uh, you know, like maybe they should have thought about that. Uh, but uh, it's good marketing. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it obviously, like, it's sort of narrated, it, it, you know, it, it at least started the narrative of the little guy challenging the big guy that was, that this whole thing has been, you know, it started, uh, the, the story sort of started with that. I mean, now it's gotten more complicated, but yeah. So. And it's worth noting that this isn't the first time these kinds of narratives were introduced, right? Mm -hmm. We had this whole story about the democratization of Wall Street right. in the 1990s. I'm thinking of like AOL partnering with Motley Fool, if anybody remembers that. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, these early days of retail trading where you could mm -hmm. like start trading stocks online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's worth it's worth throwing out that context, I think, because that's really important for why there's so much resistance now to Wall Street, right? So like during the bull market of the 90s, Bill Clinton would often talk about a new economy mm -hmm. in which middle class Americans could now own stock for the first time. Mm -hmm. And around the same time that this new economy was being sold to voters, Wall Street attached itself to this democratic language to construct what anthropologist Karen Ho calls a pro-Wall Street populism. Basically, yeah. this was the idea that finance was for everyone. I mean, I, I remember being in grade school during those years and having a classroom exercise in which we practiced stock investing. Mm -hmm. And I was not in an upper class or upper middle class school. In mm -hmm. fact, it, you know, in fact, finance was not for everyone because hedge funds were always going to make more money than amateur middle class traders Absolutely. because of expertise and bulk. And the vast majority of day traders, of course, like lose money. And it's only about 1% that consistently totally. returns than a low cost index fund would. Um, but but I think like for the broader context of this, it was like just around the same time period in the 1980s and 1990s that Wall Street instituted a takeover of corporations via the concept of shareholder value, which you've already <laughs> brought up, Christian, uh, which again, Karen Ho writes about brilliantly. And basically, welfare capitalism still meant something from the New Deal to the 1970s or the 80s, right. 
and, and to some degree, American businesses were cordoned off from the stock market. But during the 80s, uh, corporations became increasingly dependent on the stock market. Market so like financial instruments like junk bonds, you know, made hostile takeovers possible, mm-hmm. and, and the Wall Street um, takeover movement in turn transferred wealth to limited shareholders, and companies were bought and sold for pieces as they are today. Um, and I think around the same time, right, we also see a shift in CEO salaries, right? So before mm-hmm. the 80s, CEOs make maybe about 40 times as much as an average worker does. Uh, after the 1980s, CEO salaries go up to 300 to 400 times what an average worker made, uh, which I think is an index of the situation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's just part of the outrage yeah. that so many people feel about the GameStop situation today, right? A false promise uh, was made to the underclasses in the 1980s. And the Wall Street bets participants basically called bullshit and started to use the tools uh, functionally monopolized by Wall Street to take some money back. It feels fair to them that Wall Street would shut down trading because uh, democratization is suddenly disadvantaging it. I mean, I I think I I, um, agree with Representative Khanna from California, uh, who made this great point when she criticized Wall Street for spending billions on shorting this GameStop stock. Uh, in order to crush this company and essentially put its workers out of work instead of investing in future technologies that would help the U.S., which is a very quaint view of the stock market, maybe. But Mm -hmm. the situation, I think, just emphasizes that Wall Street um, only cares to change the rules of the game when those rules are not helping the rich get richer. Mm -hmm. So this is akin to a competitive gamer constantly tweaking the rules of everyone's game in order to help their mm. own performance and then mm-hmm. claiming that performance is vital to the well-being of the whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's beautifully put, Patrick. And and uh, one of the things that really strikes me uh, with uh, this is, is, you know, in spite of the populist rhetoric that's attaching to the, the, uh, the moment of, of uh, you know, Robin Hood challenging uh, this, the selling short and, you know, the, the hedge funds that the people who are actually still making bank on this are actually large corporations and large uh, investors um, that, that, I mean, day traders are, are, are an, a, a weird entity to begin with, like people who are actually betting, uh, you know, on, on, on the day-to-day fluctuations of the stock market. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a version of, of sort of cleaner gambling on a certain level. And, you know, they certainly, you know, I mean, it, there's a kind of populist rush to, to taking on the hedge funds who were so central to uh, the 2008 crash and to the the the, the sort of anti-democratic dimensions of the of, of the stock market as it played out in the 90s and the zeros uh, or the the you know the 2000s uh, but but what you know what strikes me right now is that like in the name of this this sort of democratic uh, coup, uh, what's really happening is just a, a you know, a, a, a typical kind of like reorganization of, of the big players. Uh, and so, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, what, one of the things that I'm interested in is, you know, how pranks like this, whether they're online pranks or whether they're, they're, um, and prank is maybe a weird word, but I actually think it's kind of right on a certain level, like, like, you know, um, uh, you know, almost like a version of trolling, right? Like how much, uh, you know, pranks are trolling, you know, it can, it can, uh, create chaos. Um, sometimes it can create a certain amount of like, you know, uh, anarchy in a, in a bubble on a certain level, but like, um, but what does that actually translate to for workers or what does that translate to for people who, you know, um, even as the stock market has been sold to the working class, right? Like, um, the working class mostly isn't invested in it. They don't have, you know, they're actually invested in debt, which has mostly been taken by the, 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 uh, uh, the, 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 the large, uh, you know, uh, investors. I mean, much of that debt goes, you know, trickles upwards, uh, to the, uh, to the hedge funds and to the large investors. So, yeah. 
those are I mean, those are my questions. Those are great questions and great points uh, to Patrick. And I think one of the things that's worth noting here is that you know, Robinhood actually gets paid uh, to do these trades. So like Robinhood mm-hmm. receives money in order to sort of intermediate between these day traders or these people that are using their app. And then on the other hand, the brokerage firms that are actually executing the trades. And the Mm -hmm. reason for that is because the brokerage firms use these additional trades, what they call dumb money, right? Uh, These are, this is dumb money. Smart money are the people that have more money and and more information when they're trading, right? To the Mm -hmm. other brokerage firms, the other investment banks that they handle. Uh, They use this dumb money to essentially kind of achieve something like an equilibrium for their overall trades. Because obviously, like the smart traders are mostly going in roughly the same direction. The dumb traders, quote unquote, are going in a bunch of different directions. So it helps them even things out. Mm. But with the idea here, like both of you were talking about is these day traders, these people on Robinhood, mostly they're taking losses, right? They're not making a ton of money. And this was an exception to that rule. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we want to think about here is when you have that kind of intermediary, what you're not dealing with is something like class consciousness in the classical sense, right? Right. This isn't the working class coming up with a kind of identity for itself and then revolting against capitalism. Uh, There's maybe elements of that, but it is maybe closer to a prank or a form of resistance that's not really a social movement, right? right? I don't... It I don't necessarily, build. yeah, I'm not sure if you can call Wall Street bets a social movement, not least because it's pretty clear and we know for a fact that some of the people that ended up on it were in fact working for other hedge funds mm-hmm. um, and some of the people relying on sort of, bo- you know, boosting up GameStop's uh, stock after this started getting rolling were parts of other hedge funds that were then sort of just, as they put it, kind of jumping into the game and playing mm-hmm. the game, you know, and seeing mm-hmm. what would happen. Um yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I don't, I, I agree. I, I don't know that I would describe this event yet as a movement, but I absolutely think that what's going on with Wall Street bets has so many social and political implications, mm. right? So I've read these kind of affective comparisons uh, between the GameStop uprising among Reddit users and Trump's "Make America Great Again" campaign mm. in 2016, right? There's a kind of mix of nihilism and rage about taking mm-hmm. down the elites at any cost, mm-hmm. even if it means introducing market volatility. And if you prefer a comparison from the left, you could also liken the situation emotionally in some ways to the blanket oppositional stance taken by Occupy Wall Street in 2011. Mm-hmm. Right. So Which this I is guess event- Robin Robin Hood actually grew out of that, from what I understand. Actually, it, yeah, is that right? Yeah. So yeah, I'm sorry, Patrick. Um, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 no. no I, yeah. I, I think that's right. And 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 I think you know, um, this is again. I mean, just like uh, what you already said. I mean, this is an event in which people are fighting against elites and against financial and political rule sets that only ever seem to benefit the wealthy and the powerful. Mm-hmm. And people are using network technologies, maybe not to equalize the situation, but but again, to fight back. And that language of a revolution is all over the, the subreddit. Um, and, and, you know, and I think like one thing politically that's so interesting about this is just the choice of stock, as you've said. I mean, it's so perverse and symbolically charged, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it would be GameStop. And there were like reasonable reasons to expect slight increases in GameStop stock because of the recent restructuring of the company, but in the larger scheme, it's not a great business model, right? I mean, people are downloading their games, they're getting them off of Amazon. And so to resuscitate this kind of flailing zombie stock was itself like a symbolic attack, uh, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating. And I um, I know we're focused on the fact that this is GameStop, but what's more remarkable to me politically 
on this particular show is the gamer-like collaborative tactics of the people mm -hmm. who organize this bottom-up fight, right? So this That's is a kind of trolling like, like Chris is talking about or disruptive fun that many gamers love. Uh, and this could, could really be the beginning of, of even more kind of massive market disruptions. I mean, we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see, but, but it's, you know, like if you compare this to traditional uh, political um, tactics, for instance, this is very different. Like you, you don't see the rich and the powerful caring all that much about traditional protests, but the outrage and the fury among members of the financial class has been incredible in response to the situation, mm -hmm. right? There was an interview on CNBC with the hedge fund billionaire, uh, Leon Cooperman, and he started complaining about how people are sitting at home getting their checks from the government and the GameStop Reddit organizers are inappropriate um, and, and they're just attacking wealthy people, right? So, wow. so the, the, yeah. you know, like how much anger this is causing. And I think that's notable, like to, mm -hmm. to mark this emotionally. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think that, I mean, we, it's funny because on the one hand, while one wouldn't want to call this probably a social movement in a traditional sense, on the other hand, I think Patrick's exactly right, that in revealing something like the just sheer contingency, the sheer like accidental quality of how stock, uh, you know, how the stock market works, how investment banks, uh, yeah. hedge funds and the like make their money, there is still a kind of political value to it, even if it's not necessarily even the political value that was intended, right? There, there's almost a pedagogical value to it, right? I mean, it's teaching us about, you know, how, how this actually works and how, you know, um, unfair the, I mean, you know, just fundamentally unfair the market is in, in terms of its structuration, you know? So, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, I mean, I agree that, that, and maybe I'm being too cynical about what, what this all leads to on a certain level, because I agree, Patrick, that there's, there's something really exciting about like pissing off these people, at least if nothing else, you know, and, and creating a, a certain kind of, uh, you know, revealing that the market itself is really an arbitrary mechanism that has no relationship to, uh, you know, the day-to-day -day functioning of the economy for the most part. I mean, it, it does, but it's, it's so complicated and mediated and, and, you know, but yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, I, I agree that that's, that's really an interesting dimension of it. What's what the other thing that, though, that strikes me, and this is also maybe related to gaming and certainly to, to social media is the way in which um, I guess Robinhood makes its money by selling uh, information uh, and selling, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, data uh, to, to various corporations. And so I'm, one of the things that strikes me so much about our, our current moment, whether it's like crafting a game and, in, in, you know, uh, I'm sorry, crafting a character uh, in like a, uh, you know, uh, a role-playing game um, or, you know, uh, or, um, you know, you know, writing some sort of uh, uh, long post on social media is that we have this fantasy of authorship that's actually about consumption rather than production, that we, we think we're actually writing or scripting things, but it's actually about how people are collecting our data and, and, and like, you know, creating a tighter interface between the, the, the game and, and the system and, and, and the people, you know, and I don't mean to be ranting about the system. I mean, you know, we, but yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, that, that they're increasingly, it's about, uh, calling data and that, that the real producers are the people who produce the infrastructure and we almost never actually engage them, uh, you know, on a certain level, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and, and I really like that as a, as a way of zooming out and thinking about what's going on here beyond this particular situation. And you know, mm -hmm. just add to this kind of sociopolitical analysis, you know, I said that there was like something kind of nihilistic about the mm -hmm. Wall Street's bet approach, but maybe it's not, uh, it's not nihilism so much as accelerationism, right? In other mm -hmm. words, it's about mm -hmm. developing mm -hmm. a strategy that is completely other to capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's not even about demystifying finance capitalism, mm -hmm. though I agree, I think there's a pedagogical dimension to this. But I think this incident 
fueled the fire of, of capitalist processes themselves nice. to yeah. mutation or revolution. And if we're, if we're talking about the future of politics here, I mean, there's another dimension to add to this, which is that, um, you know, we're talking about uh, a bunch of traders and day traders and GameStop, but it's worth remembering that about 70 to 80% of overall trading volume is accounted for by high frequency algorithmic trading. So mm -hmm. most trading mm -hmm. is automated and non-human, right? So computer mm -hmm. programs are mm -hmm. using mathematical models yep. to make trades at milliseconds yep. that human beings lack the cognitive abilities to even follow in real time, right? right. So even if humans contribute to the acceleration of finance capital, whether that's a good thing or not is a separate conversation. Mm -hmm. That's still going to be a small subset of the way yep. that automated programs are doing it, including increasingly with AI and machine learning tools. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. I mean, this is the kind of like strange paradox, the historical paradox here, right? Is that Robinhood seems to be the future as it were, of Wall Street, but in fact, it might actually be just this kind of like nostalgic thing. I remember the days back when, you know, trades were conducted by humans. Uh, you know, it's no longer in person, but it's still conducted by humans here. It's just not most of the trades. And so I, I think I really like the points both of you are making because it does sort of raise a bunch of questions about, okay, so there's probably not going to be any fundamental political shift that you know emerges from this event. Uh, best case scenario, we get some regulations, but it might be like I think the word Patrick uses you know a couple of times or has used so far is an index, right? Like sort of seeds of the future, uh, kind of you know gestures coming you know to our moment from the future almost. And it makes me think of, you know, one of my favorite science fiction authors, Kim Stanley Robinson, is in a couple of novels, has actually experimented with sort of imagining how people could collectively basically take over the stock market. I'm thinking of uh, New York 2140 and then most recently Ministry of the Future. In both of those novels, he has these different sort of schemes that people engage in to basically socially take over Wall Street that, you know, run the gamut from banning or, you know, ending high frequency trading to uh, basically producing a cryptocurrency that then becomes a dominant form through which investment is occurring mm -hmm. uh, and essentially outlawing in various ways, uh, you know, basically fossil fuel industries. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I just bring this up because I do think that it is in a certain sense, I think a prank is not the worst way we could describe this, but it's a prank that maybe is only going to be a ha ha funny until 30 or 40 years from now, people start really grappling with things that we're probably going to hear called financial terrorism uh, yeah. and the like. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, that others might call financial revolution. And it's going mm -hmm. to take the form, I think, of basically trying to reappropriate the infrastructure, right? Like the basis through which we reallocate wealth and try to invest wealth in the future mm -hmm. uh, and imagine how we're going to develop our economy. And I think that, you know, when you look at the kind of back and forth on the subreddit Wall Street Bets, which is a kind of, I mean, perverse and sort of hilarious subreddit with its own lingo, uh, and a real proclivity for fried chicken, uh, because once you, if you have a real big earning, you're supposed to go out and get fried chicken because people refer to like reaping dividends as tendies, uh, like 
tender uh as in money but you know also chicken tenders uh <laughs> and so you know and, and then we talk about robin hood's confetti and animation especially when you're first trading stocks there's a gamification here as well that we should talk about i mean i mean as, as a vegetarian i have like a strong uh, objection to, to that let's set a tender uh puns or whatever but uh Absolutely. but it's, yeah. there is a huge gamification dimension to this yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's it's there is a jokey, humorous, comedic quality that I think the subreddit embraces, as a lot of subreddits will do. Um, and I, I the, go for it, Chris. Oh yeah, I, I guess the thing I always have with these is is when you out cynical the the, the cynics. Um, I'm not sure where that leads you. Like you know, mm-hmm. like like you know, I I, I I the idea of a revolution happening through financial means uh, it, it seems. I mean, I, I love the the you know the Kim Stanley Robinson vision of of of, of radicalizing that, and you know, and I I mean his fiction is always amazing, but like, uh, but. I, I just wonder if, if if that actually winds up producing something like a real movement that's about structural or infrastructural change, you know that 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 and maybe I'm and maybe I'm being too old school and and you know and sort of brick and mortar if you will it brought I'm, you I'm, to be I'm old like school, old, Chris. Yeah. I'm, right, I know totally. Right, I'm, I'm like the old GameStop itself. Right, like I still want you to come in and you know purchase a physical <laughs> game and you know um uh you know I can Here, read this Trotsky, read this Lenin. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> your little but, red book. <laughs> but I mean, part of this is the ways in which the the function of the state, which was supposed to actually guarantee a certain amount of welfare, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, has actually been sideloaded into this incredibly volatile uh, global market. Uh, and, and you know, and, and part of this is like what I worry about is the ways in which, and maybe I have more of an attachment to the state than some leftists. You know, I, I actually don't quite see global communism as, as anarchism really working uh, without some sort of state structures uh, in place that, that, that probably are, are, are multiplied. I mean, I actually, uh, I don't I don't want to get way into this, but you know, there's, uh, um, you know, I like the idea of a, of a fe- of a global socialist federation or something like that. But, uh, um, but um, anyway, um, sixteen bit communism. Hey, that works for me. <laughs> <laughs> Zelda communism, yeah. So, um, but you know, um, uh, not not that not that all Zelda sixteen bit, but um, yeah. Uh, uh, but I, I actually think that that. You know, part of what we need to confront is the ways in which all so many political stakes and so many economic stakes have been now been like like you know uh, made part of this system that that is set up to be uh, purely speculative uh, and and uh, and and you know involve these sort of heavy actors and I I, I'm just without some sort of movement on the ground uh, in terms of production in terms of the transformation of social space I I just wonder what this is really you know I I, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to believe. I think accelerationism is the right word, but this is exactly the problem with accelerationism is you have a lot of uneven developments in the economy in which there's a lot of people on the ground who have no relationship to this and who just, other than just getting screwed by that, by that structure of appropriation and, uh, you know, that, 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 that's central to, uh, you know, uh, to financial uh, uh, speculation. So, I mean, maybe another way of saying this is that, and I think this is, what Kim Stanley Robinson tries to do in his novels is, mm-hmm. you know, is try to imagine things like this is you can't just have like a political revolution with financial means. Financial right. means might be part of it, but you that also works. have to think about infrastructure, yeah, totally. right? Yeah. You have to think yeah. about the fact that in the U.S. we literally have infrastructure falling apart, urban yes. infrastructure, highway infrastructure, and right. the like. And I'm thinking of folks like, for example, Phil Neal, who in his 
book Hinterlands totally. talks about this like accumulation of literal capital, but also technology yeah. uh, within a set number of cities, uh, mm-hmm. New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, right. uh, that can accumulate this wealth and this technology. Meanwhile, the bridges, the roads, yep. the you yep. know, network infrastructure in other parts of the country, in a very large country like the United States, mm-hmm. are just falling apart. They're crumbling. Yeah. And yeah. So the question part of how of do you have a, it, both? Right. And part of this is a, is a kind of um, alter materiality that that's central to the, the the kind of functioning of the stock market and 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 the kind of disinvestment in the kind of heavy materialities of things like like roads and and uh you know and and trains and and uh you know public transit public uh you know even things like public education you know i mean that the, the brick and mortar you know to come back to gamestop the brick and mortar doesn't disappear just because it's not uh sexy or or, or something we want to invest in you know so yeah, yeah there's there's a question that ian bogos asks in one of his atlantic pieces where he asks are software engineers actually engineers right and mm-hmm. in one sense mm-hmm. well sure yes like so much of infrastructure does depend on computation these days and there is a materiality to computation and to server farms and things mm-hmm. like that but on the other hand there's a completely different level of expertise and understanding of the public good that comes mm-hmm. with the paradigm of software and en- so-called software engineering compared mm-hmm. to the forms of engineering that came with roads and bridges. Mm-hmm. If a bridge mm-hmm. collapses, he argues, or if a, a road breaks down, people are going to die. And mm-hmm. there's a sense of responsibility that goes into that kind of profession. Uh, there isn't often with software engineering, which people fix through updates and <laughs> you'll often release something that's extremely buggy, like, you know, 2077. <laughs> um, the world, and then hope to recoup your losses um, through uh, through subsequent updates and things like that. But this is this question of like what is infrastructure in our time, and yeah. how the older paradigm of infrastructure and the contemporary one are, are different from one another. I think is a really smart question. That, that both oh, that's have. excellent. Thank you, Patrick. That, that's actually going to. I don't mean to get into this right now, but I'm working on a book on infrastructure at some point. So uh, it's after the one I'm working on right now. That's going to really. That's going to really spur me. So thank you for that. Yeah, that makes sense. I just want to note here that Chris is going from working on a book on sex to a book on infrastructure, which I think hey. is the exact wrong direction to go in. <laughs> uh, it's but whatever. This, you know, that's it's your all choice. The same. Chris. I mean. You know, sex, infrastructure, you know, uh, yeah, you know, uh, um, fuck, fucking on a train, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Chris, our explicit warning. No, you know, I know I, mean, I just wrecked the whole podcast. So you, you totally derailed it. No, uh, yeah, totally. I, I think so to speak. That, yeah, I think, yes, I think that part of what we're dealing with here is, mm-hmm. you know, this is where the nexus where it makes sense to talk about this on a gaming podcast, I think, right. uh, in part because this question of responsibility or of civic duty or however you want to put it, right? Uh, if there's something about the subreddit Wall Street bets that seems game-like, and if a lot of what they're doing seems like griefing hedge funds, uh, you know, and we cheer for that. And I'm fine with cheering for that, by the way, uh, as cynical as it may be. I have no problem enjoying some hedge funds taking a loss. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's the obvious question, well, what happens when the griefing turns on you? Uh, mm-hmm. Or what is, what's the fallout here? But I think there's a more important question that we've been addressing, which is, you know, Griefing's all well and good, and maybe you can use it tactically. Maybe you can use it mm-hmm. to show, for example, or expose the ridiculous absurdity of Wall Street profits. Uh, and maybe you can even use it to pay off your medical loans or your student loans or whatever, if you happen to be one of the lucky handful of people that got in on the GME stock at the right time. 
Right. And that's all well and good. And that's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think there's a lot of positive things that can come out of that, come out of talking about that pedagogically as a lesson for people. But then if we are talking about like a long-term imagination, Mm -hmm. uh, one which includes things like games, game development, uh, the stock market and things like that, Mm-hmm. in a positive political future, I suppose, uh, if that's imaginable anymore, uh, then we need to think about, okay, so like, what can we take from this or where can we go, maybe is a better way of putting it, uh, that isn't just a prank or that isn't totally. just about exposing or demystifying Wall Street for the absurdity that it is. And, and that's where I, you know, I, I don't think the answer is going to end up being that a bunch of people go in and make something like a financial tr- trading union uh, for people that are on Wall Street uh, bets. Although, you know, something like that might exist in the future and maybe include some of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess I wonder how there still might be something about taking on the role or the gamble of trying to imagine a future that's different from the present and of trying mm-hmm. to imagine a different way the stock market works, a different way that, you know, just even buying a game might work and things like that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I would. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I actually think that that, you know, investment is necessary. It's a necessary part of doing large scale economic work on a certain level. So like, you know, we don't need to get rid of we don't need to abolish the stock market. We need to make it like functional for what it was supposed to do, which is actually amass enough, um, you know, money. Uh, I won't even call it capital because I'm hoping we move beyond that that paradigm. Right. But an, amassing enough money uh, to be able to do large scale work. Um, and, and, and that's crucial work. I mean, I'm I'm not somebody who thinks that everything needs to get really localized and, 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 you know, and, and somehow we need to get away from money or any of those other things. Like we need to be able to do these kinds of large scale projects, but they, but we need to actually always ask what's, what's the social function and responsibility of markets as, as you know, I mean, you already sort of suggest, I mean, said this on a, on a certain level and, and we need to, we can't just, I worry about the affect and I want to come back. I mean, Patrick sort of invoked uh, affect earlier and I think this is exactly right. I worry about the affect of cynicism that seems to run even the ways in which we challenge the system these days, right? That we don't have a, you know, and this may be related to stuff that we probably don't want to get into here, but like the kind of post-critique, critique debates in in literary studies, among other things, and in in probably in game, you know, in in game studies too. But like, uh, you know, we can't just criticize. Critique is necessary, right? Criticizing is necessary, but we also have a vision. We have to have a vision of building and we have to have a a vision of large scale building on a certain level. So, yeah. I mean, just to maybe rephrase part of what you were saying before, Chris, and what you're saying now, just Mm -hmm. to kind of make sure I'm getting it uh, myself is I think part of what you were saying, if I understood correctly, was part of the problem here is that what Wall Street Bets is doing and what the kind of pumping up and short squeeze uh, that's happening with GameStop stock is doing is it's saying, hey, we're going to like skim off the top of Wall Street profits, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it's still going to be a profit-driven financial market. Exactly. Right? It's still exactly. the ultimate end is going to be to make a few people a lot of money. Yeah. Instead of having a restructuring so that we, you know, socialize the market as it were, uh, right. so that the goal wouldn't be profits. That might be part of it, but the goal wouldn't be profits. The goal would be some kind of common good or social good uh, exactly. that still involved investment, long-term planning, and so on. And I know Patrick, you want to get in. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's worth too, like part of what you were saying before, Christian, was this this question of um, 
what it means for us to be talking about this situation on a gaming podcast, right? And I and I think, of course, there's the GameStop dimension to this, but there's also like I keep thinking, like before we even get to the alternatives, right? To think about like what games and finance have in common with one another already. Uh, right, they have similar approaches to abstraction, to uncertainty. Mm. At an interface mm. level, there are similarities between video game systems and day trader consoles. Um, but, but even you know, like in in and we talked about this on, a, on an earlier podcast. But like in my last book, I argued that both neoliberalism and video games took off culturally at about the same moment in the '70s and the '80s. And you know, for me, that's not a causal argument. It's not like economics and politics led to the success of video games. And it's not like video games caused neoliberalism, but there's this interesting co-emergence in the very period that we're talking about historically. Um, and, you know, um, and, and many games offer this, you know, sense of safety, activity, manageable repetition, control, things that the economy doesn't offer most people. And we see neoliberal ideology in a very direct way in many game mechanics. But I think this point exceeds digital games themselves. like. Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting just to think about like how central games have become to all culture, not just not just game culture or something like that, right? We see yeah. military and strategy tactics being being framed in game terms for a long time with war games, with applications of economic game theory during the Cold War, investments in military simulations, or you know when I'm watching MSNBC or CNN you know, like, which I rarely do, but the, 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 the discourse and the language is so similar to like watching ESPN, like the similarity between the way that political elections and sports are covered are really similar or QAnon has been likened increasingly to a game with a game master running it, right? I mean, so like games and game language are everywhere and they're kind of the perfect metaphor for competitive and often predatory tactics that are part of neoliberalism or sometimes of finance culture. And I think like on top of all of that, um, the tools and the tactics that gamers have been using for decades have become more and more mainstream. Like one example would be Discord, right? Discord started as just a few years ago as a channel for competitive gamers, but has since been taken up uh, by a huge number of users for everyday communication, but the initial gamer architecture still impacts how it's used or mm -hmm. aspects of gamer culture, including like gamifying collaborative problem solving have been applied to social movements around Gamergate or rapid bottom up organization on Reddit or stuff like that. And so mm -hmm. this GameStop event is just the most recent instance of that. But the but the point is that games aren't just objects anymore, right? They're increasingly a dominant way of thinking and one that has impacted political economy in, in, in many, many ways. So mm -hmm. You see this even in the imbrication of money and games through financial gambling or skin gambling or the gamification of cryptocurrency and mm -hmm. Bitcoin mining, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. It's literally everywhere. So I think mm -hmm. like it's so important for a podcast like this to be taking up the situation and then thinking about what its broader implications and its alternatives might be. Mm. That was great, Patrick. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's the crucial part here, right? The crucial part isn't GameStop, which may or may not exist in 10 years. The crucial part is whether or not we like it, the logics of gaming are infiltrating so many different parts of our lives, notions of what it means to win or lose, notion of pumping up stats, uh, you know, user interface, uh, things, algorithms, all kinds of things, you know, that started in gaming in some way are spreading to other areas of our life. And moreover, and this is something that, you know, I think Mackenzie Work, for example, does a nice job of talking about in gamer theory. Uh, and others have talked about it too, like Patrick, uh, 
but it produces a kind of seamlessness between social logic and playing a game, right? Between how society runs and playing a game that one does actually change how we live, right? Does, you know, if we want to take the neoliberal example, I think we can see lots of ways that the kind of like most awful versions of emphasizing competition over cooperation, you can find in everything from like the battle royale genre and its popularity uh, to just the ways in which leaderboards work, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see, you know, that's all well and good when it just stays in a game, but it becomes a whole different thing when it becomes part of your daily life, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's that. But there's also the question of like what the seamlessness between gaming or gamification and society obfuscates or hides or, you know, mystifies or however you want to put it, right? What we can't see if we only think about society like a game, even as society does become like a game, right? Saying it's like a game doesn't mean it is a game. Uh, And that's the danger here. The danger here is that the fantasy perhaps of Wall Street bets Right. And fantasy, not in the sense that it's fake, but fantasy in the sense of that it like it's an imagination of something you want that has real effects. Right. Right. And the fantasy at work here is one that, oh, we can transform our lives as if we were playing a game by playing the stock market. Uh, Go ahead. Go for it. Oh, yeah. Which is a fantasy of, of, of kind of dematerialization on a certain level that 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 uh, uh, that there's a, a an idea of occupying various positions on an avatar kind of way. And I, I, I even think about this, you know, uh, in relationship to, to sports gaming, where you actually occupy these various bodies, often racialized bodies, right? Um, and you occupy them um, often as a kind of mix of the GM and the player. Um, but, you know, you sort of go into the, you know, and I'm not a big sports gamer, but, you know, you you you, you go into those, uh, 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 to, to those avatars and, and you get to occupy it in a, in a way in which you never actually have to be the embodied person. You're the person actually uh, investing in those spaces, you know, making choices, making decisions, but who's on the end of that? Uh, of, of that, uh, you know, that play, uh, and especially who's on the end of uh, the, the various choices you make on the stock market, which workers are on the end of that, you know, who's getting fired, who's not being able to eat, you know, who's, who's uh, uh, you know, having to pick up and relocate. Uh, all of that has to do with the kind of avatar fetishism that I think is only offered to the middle classes and the rich uh, globally, and especially, you know, also in the US. And that, that, you know, even as some people are occupying a space where it feels like you can game everything and everything can be a kind of play, um, you have a flip side where a lot of people are like left holding the bag and 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 actually being being the physical embodiments of of these of these logics uh and and so you know it's it i talk in insistence in the material about avatar fetishism as a kind of dominant I- ideology and its flip side is embodiment uh envy in a certain way but like but but the embodiment here i think is is really what we have to i mean that's where the carnage really piles up on a certain level and so i'm i'm, I'm interested in that i mean like you know if some of us get to play the apocalypse who are all the other people's you know actually suffering uh you know uh in the apocalypse i mean i even think of uh um uh uh, um, the ways in which you know ex- accelerating uh, uh, the market the way that that we've been talking about is a version of what Na- Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism. You know, a kind of play. You know, a kind of making money off of of of, of chaos. Uh, but there's always a fallout to that. There's always a remainder. There's always you know I might say a fleshly remainder. There's always actual real embodied people on the other end of that. So yeah. 
and, and you're right with with sports this is like incredibly racialized and if totally. you think about just like in the nfl the kind of like crumbling bodies and the brain damage that comes mm -hmm. with this and how quickly that happens in someone's career uh totally. often, it seems based on what we know and we're, we're seeing this like interesting transition or augmentation i don't know what it is exactly now with this this kind of avatar theory that you're talking about mm -hmm. where um by the end of this year esports are supposed to have uh higher viewership numbers than in, in the united states yeah than, like, yeah most sports outside of the NFL, but they're supposed to have like higher viewership numbers than Major League Baseball and and even the NBA, mm -hmm. and and that brings with it interesting questions about materialization as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and embodiment because of course you're incredibly embodied when you're playing a competitive video game. You're mm -hmm. uh, you're pressing hotkeys. I mean the the speed and the rhythm in which you're pressing. Mm -hmm. Buttons or keys makes a huge difference, but we think of it, or many people think of it, as comparatively dematerialized compared to uh, traditional sports. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, th no, that's so well said. I, I agree. And and um, I mean, what's weird is that the, the the logic puts you in the position of the of the kind of manager, and I, uh, you know, in a certain way, and it puts you in the position. And you know, it's interesting how increasingly disposable most players become in contemporary sports. Um, but you're right. There's also a way in which we don't think about the body um, as it interfaces. You know, when you're actually playing games, and especially competitively. I also think about the you know how uh, uh, game testers are often the most exploited part of the industry and, and, and the conditions under which they work and, and what kinds right. of, of bodily, you know, injuries that produces, what kind of, you know, long-term bodily, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, pain and, and, and suffering that produces. So, yeah. And one of the things, oh, one of the things that haven't, you know, hasn't been talked about with all this GameStop uh, stock uh, discussion uh, just in general, let alone here uh, has been, for example, the moment early on in the pandemic when there were all of these stories coming out of GameStop about how they didn't have all the PPE they needed. They didn't have the mm -hmm. cleaning supplies. They were being asked to buy their own masks, uh, the, the people working there specifically, right? Mm -hmm. And they were trying to stay open in order to just to survive, which I suppose is understandable, but they were essentially kind of like putting the risks on their employees mm -hmm. and really kind of forcing their assistant managers at these stores and their managers at these stores to just force their employees to work in unsafe conditions during the pandemic. And so if we want to think about, you know, the bodies that are, you know, on who's, you know, who are taking a beating here, you know, some of them are just the employees working for GameStops, by the way, which, no, you know, a number of GameStops are closing. I'm in a small college town in central PA. For some reason, we had two GameStops uh, in this small town uh, like two years ago, and they closed the one at the mall that is increasingly like a kind of scene from a zombie movie uh just completely <laughs> barren same thing just... actually in normal illinois where i live it was exactly the same thing yeah so we yeah we have i mean one that stayed so open yeah yeah they're closing down these stores they're they're you know there is a cost being born that's really material here yeah. uh but at the same time i think the appeal of trying to fix your life through a gamified version of the stock market is completely understandable in a moment in U.S. history where the politics of labor, the ability for people that are laboring to have some kind of real power seems minimal at best, where unions are you know, not dead, but certainly don't have the power they did 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, where you know, even the party of the quote unquote left in the United States, the Democratic Party, uh, 
you know, doesn't really care about anything resembling the power of labor or anti-capitalism barely even cares about reforming capitalism most of the time, let alone like trying to imagine a better system that benefits more people. And so I think it's entirely understandable that people get excited, right. And shout about tendies (laughs) and, you know, use rocket ship emoticons when they get like the small win, Mm -hmm. maybe the problem though is thinking about it as a win. And this is exactly what video games have trained uh, this generation, myself included, to do, right? I mean, you're constantly learning how to min-max and pay attention to smaller and smaller stats and quantifying and abstracting everything. So rather than taking to the streets and being co-present for long periods of time, not for one-off protests, but for things like the civil rights movement, which went on for years and years and years, and was a life or death question, and was a continual question. It didn't last for a few days or a few weeks. Again, it was years and that really made a huge difference. And I'm not saying that like, there's no place for these kinds of new media tactics or these kind of like gamified um, responses, but they are tactics, they're not strategies, right? They're ways of like producing room for maneuver locally at particular times. They're not a way of resolving the bigger economic and political problems that many of us face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Patrick, the substitution of tactics for strategy, or if we wanted to put it in like game design terms, it's like you're thinking about the mechanics of the game without thinking about the values that those mechanics are trying to bring us. And I don't, you know, that's a little too simple, a little too kind of means versus ends logic there. But there is something like, you know, I found myself as we're having this conversation, imagining some kind of union that wouldn't necessarily be based in the workplace, but, you know, this kind of social unionism that's been discussed in recent years that would be cutting across different workplaces, even different industries. And I found myself thinking about, I wonder what a union would look like where getting people to interact with the union more, to organize for the union more, would result in some kind of badges or leveling up mechanic so that you could almost imagine min-maxing your position in a union. And I'm not even saying that in a kind of satirical way. I'm actually sort of imagining what would it mean to reverse this around where if it's a problem that we like to imagine politics and social uh, movements or interventions uh, as if they were a game when the stakes are so much higher then maybe we could reverse it around and say, what if we reimagine what a game is or reimagine Mm -hmm. like what game mechanics uh, could be and the way that they're integrated in our life so that it's not just about winning or losing. Maybe it's about social bonds of various types. And then we can sort of think about co-op gaming. Uh, And all of a sudden, you know, we're in a PVE situation where the players are all of us and the enemy's capital or something, you know? Um, I would love yeah. a union to be more like the Dark Brotherhood, and and you know, in the in the various in Skyrim or in in uh, Oblivion or any of those. So yeah, so um, you know, take you know, we just have to take out the system. You get a contract, and you take out you know some part of the system. You know, so yeah, so. I mean, I mean, this has so much to do also with the kinds of games that we play. Like I even remember Marshall McLuhan back in Understanding Media in the games chapter, like talks about how. Um, informative it is to think about what specific games particular cultures are playing. I mean, Hoitzinger and Kaiwa have things to say about that too. Um, but like we in the United States these days, especially if you take into account things like sports and reality TV mm-hmm. alongside video games, we play a lot of competitive games. Yep. And, and like you're suggesting, there are other kinds of games out there, including cooperative games, including collaborative games. Um, I mean, even kind of like economic game theory was predicated upon like competitive games and the prisoner's dilemma 
and things like that. But if we think about uh, mechanics like asymmetrical co-op mechanics, which are not as common as competitive mm -hmm. mechanics, if we had an entire cultural wing dedicated to expanding asymmetrical co-op to the place that competitive mechanics have gotten, well, that would be a very different culture. And that culture could potentially start impacting um, the kinds of metagames and the kinds of uh, political games that people are able to play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, like people love co-op games. Mm -hmm. People are always excited, whether it's couch co-op or online co-op, whenever yeah. a game announces that there's co-op, right? Like what? people get excited about that because they get to hang out with their friends and play totally. a game and it becomes totally. less about competition more about hanging out with your friends and i i think you know it, it I, I was really like uh pleased and 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 sort of moved by the fact that animal crossing was so popular during the the, the pandemic you know in the, the initial part of the pandemic and the ways in which you know that's again a, a game about just building and cooperation on a certain level you know and and like you know i mean although you do uh, have a mortgage <laughs> you do have a mortgage although although it's 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 he actually uh you know tom nook supposedly doesn't make any money on 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 the mortgage uh it's a it's an interest-free uh loan uh so that's because I mean, he's using your money to leverage uh, uh, yeah probably his, I mean, his investments in the market it's true nook nook probably is a crook but you know this is also what i'm trying to talk about like you know with uh um with with the idea of of uh you know have finance actually working to, to enable things rather than than to you know to just merely profit off things if that makes sense yeah I think this makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think this is maybe a good sort of wrapping up point and maybe sort of mm -hmm. each of us can make our sort of last point. But for, you know, for me, I think what I like about this is one, we've managed, I think, to recognize some of the positive value in Wall Street bets squeezing the hedge funds, which is it's educational and that we get to see the Wall Street uh, sort of set up for, if it's not a fraud, that at the very least it's, perverse in the worst way, uh, not in a good way. Uh, it's absurd. And, you know, moreover, it is like, a, you know, some small people getting some kind of satisfaction from a very unfair society. But we also recognize that there's a lot of energy being squandered there, being put into an outlet that might have short-term benefits or even long-term benefits for individuals, but it's not going to have positive long-term social benefits probably. But that same energy could be redirected to other kinds of positive experiments mm -hmm. that might be about investing and maybe even speculating in the most general sense of that term, mm -hmm. right? Like reimagining our economic future. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think games has something to say about that. And it's worth noting that there's a lot of, like Patrick was saying, there's a lot of different kinds of games out there uh, that involve cooperation, collaboration, that maybe you're min-maxing, but maybe it's not just about getting to the end. I mean, the beauty of Skyrim, right, is that you don't have to follow the main narrative, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to make it about winning or losing Skyrim. Mm -hmm. You can just exist in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember reading recently in a book on Todd Howard about somebody who in oblivion decided to live as a priest for like a year or two wow. that mostly just meant like tending a garden on a hill uh, in oblivion. And there's something about that that's really lovely and even utopian, which is about changing the narrative from winning and losing in which the people with the most are probably gonna keep on winning and just reinventing the game, right? Mm -hmm. 
And that's what I hope the energy from Wall Street bets goes towards, is reinventing the game so that the stakes aren't just about winning or losing, but maybe about some other kind of cooperation, some other kind of existence. That's beautifully put, Christian. And, you know, it actually, we were going to talk about uh, this early and then we, we got off on other things. But I, I want to tell a quick story about uh, one experience in GameStop that, that'll uh, serve as my conclusion here. But I, I was actually pointed to oblivion uh, by uh, uh, a GameStop employee because I, you know, I'd, I'd had a, uh, an Xbox, but I really wasn't paying any attention to what was supposed to be good. Uh, you know, this is before YouTube. And, and I mean, I think it was before I mean, YouTube may have been around, but I wasn't on it. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't getting the um and it's before i actually you know like got a subscription to game informer through the the, the you know through my gamestop mem- membership and and uh but you know i was going to buy some other rpg like two worlds or something like that and the guy goes no buy this one uh and 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 he gave me oblivion and oblivion like blew my mind it was like one of those games where like um you know i the the D kid in me was just like you know ecstatic and i didn't even know what the hell i was doing for for you know weeks and weeks while i was playing it i was just wandering around enjoying the world and 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 yeah there's something really beautifully utopian about creating other worlds and 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 even there's a there's a little utopian dimension to like talking to the good the clerk who can turn you on to something uh and and you know and having that kind of conversation and that and so yeah i want that i want that vision i want that vision of building i want that vision of building alternate worlds uh and 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 the kind of conversation that can happen across people from different backgrounds i mean this is i think some high school kid who was basically working their you know, their, their, their nighttime job, but he, he knew what he knew. I mean, he knew his stuff and I didn't, and it was a, it was a kind of great moment of learning in that space. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that's wonderful. Um, really amazing anecdote. I, I, I never uh, spent much time in GameStop. So um, I've mostly gotten my games online, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Toys R Us before that, I suppose. But um, I, I guess I'll, I mean, I'm wearing a shirt right now, which people on the podcast won't be able to, to see, I suppose, but uh, it's a shirt I got from my friend Lauren Berlant, and it says good, "Good Necessary Trouble," which is a quotation from uh, John Lewis, who was at the forefront of the civil rights movement. And you know, I mean, he had this quote about like never being afraid to make some noise and get in good, um, good necessary trouble. Yeah. Um, and and I think you know, if we think about the GameStop incident again as a series of tactics within a, a longer struggle. Um, it doesn't have to fix everything. It doesn't have to be a panacea or the entire alternative. It's some noise in the system that seems generative, productive, perhaps will force some regulations, perhaps will force some interesting mutations, will change the rules of the game in some ways. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I agree with Christian that there's, there's some value to that. I mean, no single event is going to change everything. It's an ongoing networked process. Um, and so, so this is, this has been an interesting week tracking this particular event. Yeah. So thanks for, uh, joining me, Chris, Patrick, always good to talk to both of you. Oh, thank you. This was great. Uh, so yeah, um, I, I, I learned so much from this. So thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you both so much. That was wonderful. Wow.